In just 48 hours, TopTel can provide the world-class AI and tech experts you need to optimize your business and stay competitive in 2024 and beyond. To get started, visit TopTel.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. I'm Joanna Coles. I'm currently the Chief Content Officer at Hearst. I'm an executive producer on Freeform's The Bold Type, and I recently wrote a book called Love Rules, published by HarperCollins. I think women have been slightly conditioned to treat themselves with cupcakes or little pieces of jewellery or bits of fashion or a bag. And actually, the bigger goal is economic independence, is a retirement plan, is your own apartment, is a holiday house, is holiday. I mean, whatever you particularly want. But I think it's easy to get stuck in the idea that somehow we treat ourselves with a pair of shoes and that's the goal. And of course, it's not. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. As a top media executive, Joanna Coles takes on one of the toughest industries on a daily basis. She discusses how she became the first chief content officer of Hearst Magazines and gives advice on how women can follow her lead by asking for what they want. So, Joanna, growing up, you were called the head girl by your sister. How come? Oh, because I was always bossing her around and assuming head girl type roles. I would have been fantastically annoyed with myself if I had been my own older sister. You said your mom taught you to always have your own money. What do you think inspired her to say that? I think that she was of an age where she began to see a series of her friends getting divorced. Very few of these women actually worked at the time. They were all in the traditional marriages. And she saw the women getting really stuffed by divorce. And so she taught me and my sister the most important thing you could have was economic independence. And I think she's right for women. It it makes a huge difference. Did you follow that advice, would you say? Well, I'm, I, I mean, I'm married, I have kids, but I am economically independent. Early on in your career, you were a foreign correspondent. What did you learn from that work? I learned how important it is to be able to work on your own, actually, and the great freedom of setting off with nothing more than a notepad and a pen and a curiosity beyond anybody else's curiosity to ask questions. I absolutely loved it as a job. And at some point, my dream is when my kids are through college, uh, that I'll go back to the simplicity of that. Being able to travel anywhere, ask people questions and write a story about it was a wonderful job. You had to give up that work that you loved because you got pregnant. How did you cope with that? Well, it's not quite how it happened. I actually was a correspondent with my older son. But by the time I had my second son, it became clear to me I really couldn't answer the requirements of the job, which were to travel often with zero notice. You would really follow where the story was because I was a news reporter traveling around America at the time. Uh, and My husband also traveled and we just couldn't make it work. So I took a job as a magazine editor because that way I could control my schedule more. Was that difficult, though, to walk away from something that you loved? Extremely difficult. I was very frustrated sitting behind a desk editing people whose stories I thought I could write better than them. Uh, But after a couple of years, I really got into it. I had some wonderful colleagues at the time I was at New York Magazine, which was enormous fun. And you really felt like you were part of the beating heart of New York City, which I loved, especially as my big love affair was with New York City. And um, then I got into it. And then I was lucky 
lucky enough to get selected to be the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, which was a wonderful job. And then I went on to edit Cosmo, which was hilarious from day one to my final day. And, uh, and then I just loved the sort of more managerial role of being an editor. What's your advice for women who have to step away from a career they love or a job they love to take care of family? Well, I didn't do it specifically to take care of family. I did it so that I would be able to manage a schedule, see my children, be able to partner with my husband more fairly. Um, And for me, it turned out to be the most almighty opportunity. I never expected to enjoy uh, editing as much as I ended up enjoying it. The first two years were hard because I was stuck behind a desk, which was not something I'd ever really done in my life. I'd always been on the move and, and following stories. But actually... I think if you want to have a family and you want to have children, and I knew I did very much, you also want to be able to see them. And you realize at certain points in your life, so to answer your question, what would I tell younger women, there are ebbs and flows. There are ebbs and flows in your family. There are ebbs and flows in your career. And you're trying to negotiate and navigate those waters. It's a bit like white water rafting, really. You just have to hold on to the side of the boat and hope that the river takes you downstream. When you were asked to be editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, your initial reaction was that you could think of five other people who could do it better than you. How come women often downplay their own skills? I don't know if I was downplaying my own skills as much as actually suggesting other people that might have done it better than me. But I'm very glad that in the end they persisted and, and uh, insisted that they wanted me to do it because I think sometimes other people can see you in different roles that you can't always see for yourself. And that's about being open to opportunity. And I think it's very important when you're younger to always take the call, to always make the call, to be open to things you wouldn't necessarily think were in your skill set because sometimes it turns out you have a hidden skill set. And these are this is an interesting way to find it. And often people from the outside understand your own skill set better than you do. How do you make that call, though, if you feel like, oh, I, I want this job, but I don't think I'm qualified for it, or I want to speak to this person, but they're way too senior for me to speak? You remind yourself, if you're a woman, that a man would never think that. No man ever thinks he's underqualified for a job. In fact, he usually thinks he's overqualified for the job, whereas women, I think, statistically have to have 80% of what a job requires to apply for it. Men just have to have the hope and the expectation they will get the job. It's a very different mindset. What do you say to people who say you're an overnight sensation? Well, I laugh and I say I'm an overnight sensation 30 years in the making because I, I've i spent 30 years, you know, getting up early in the morning and slogging off to work and getting through to the end of the day, as have many people. I'm not suggesting it's just uh, it's just me, but it's, you know, well, that's probably all I can say on that, actually. You said you're direct. Have you paid a price for being direct? I'm sure I have paid a price for being direct, but also there's a lot of benefits that come with being direct. And I think when you're managing a staff, the most important thing they can have is clarity about what you, their boss, uh, what you want them to do. The worst thing I have found working for people who weren't clear or watching other people struggle with people who aren't clear uh, is not knowing what the expectations are for you. And so I have tried always to be direct with my staff and sometimes I'm too direct, uh, but I'm sure it's benefited me in the long run. In media, especially at the upper ranks, is dominated by men. How do you compete? 
I don't think of it as competing. I think of it as contributing. Honestly, if you were in competition with everybody, you'd never get out of bed in the morning. There are so many talented people around. But it's also not how I approach a situation. You approach it with what can I bring to the table? What can I do with other people? And what can they do with me? How can we make this bigger than the sum of ourselves? When I was working as a correspondent, we were deeply competitive because you were chasing a story and you would have five or ten other people also chasing the story. So you'd be in direct competition. But in management, you can't afford to be in competition like that. You're known in the industry as a very hard worker. What drives you? I love the work. Why wouldn't you want to work hard? Life is so much more interesting when you're working hard. You get much more benefits. The work itself becomes more interesting. You get more done. And that creates a momentum. Um, I don't like not working hard. You said who you marry becomes the biggest influence in your career. How so? Well, you've got a partner with whom you can discuss your choices, with whom you can figure out uh, how to decompress after a hard day at the office. Hopefully you can do the same for them. And if you're going to have children, who you choose to have your children with will be the single most important relationship uh, other than with your children that you have in your life. And so you want to make that decision carefully. What do you say to women who are worried about outshining their husband? Oh, just get on with it. Don't worry about their egos? Well, I don't think you can. You can't manage your own job to someone else's ego, you have to choose someone that you think wants the best for you, which is probably also the best for them. And in my own situation, I've been lucky. My husband's mother, my mother-in-law, was an exceptional pioneering doctor in Africa. I've never met anybody like her. She was an extraordinary woman. Uh, So my husband was used to uh, sort of women who made decisions and got on with it and weren't fantastically domestic. I'm not pretending I'm the most domestic uh, person in New York. Neither is he, incidentally. But you know, it's it's again, it's the ebbs and flows of relationship, the ebbs and flows of the workplace. You just have to get on with it. What do you say to women who feel like if they fall in love, their independence will be compromised? Well, sometimes it will be compromised if you fall in love with the wrong person. I think the goal is to find someone that you have a lot in common with. And it's really exciting being in love. It's the most fun feeling that there is. You said you're tired of women lying to themselves about what they really want. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's a difficult time to be a young woman right now because there's a lot of pressure on women to be able to do absolutely everything themselves. And when I wrote my book, Love Rules, I came across a lot of women who felt it was retro to admit they would like a relationship and they would like to get married and have children. And they felt that this was somehow channeling a 1950s vibe, which would get them chastised or ignored or relegated in the, in the workplace. Yet this was actually what they wanted. And I discovered that, you know, there were pools of women sort of whispering this to each other. And I think probably a lot of men whispering this to each other too. But it was a hard thing to say out loud. And especially in the age of Me Too and Time's Up, women are supposed to be able to, you know, bring home the bacon, cook it up in the pan, as the ad went. And that can feel exhausting and lonely. So should they just ignore these feelings of worrying about... To uh, worrying about their independence will be compromised, just ignore that? Or? Well, I think everybody wants to go into a relationship if you're going to commit to somebody yep. over the long haul. Being very uh, smart about how you do that, I certainly know a lot of women who are doing prenups at this stage. But, you know, I've found it very helpful sometimes to whisper to myself at night, everything's going to be okay.
ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Secrets of Wealthy Women. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and NPR One. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. You said women need to dream bigger. How so? Well, I remember coming across two entrepreneurs while we were at the Cannes Lion Film Festival. I ran into them in Celine, which is a, one of my favorite stores, and they were saying to me that they were in the process of raising some more money. And if they got this next round, I think it was a Series B they were looking to raise, they were planning to buy themselves a bag. And apparently, I don't remember this, but they said to me, I looked at them and said, oh, for God's sake, you can dream bigger than a Celine bag. Now, is there anything bigger than a Celine bag? Not really. But yes, of course there is. And my point was that I think women have been slightly conditioned to treat themselves with cupcakes or little pieces of jewelry or bits of fashion or a bag. And actually, the bigger goal is economic independence, is a retirement plan, is your own apartment, is a holiday house, is holiday. I mean, whatever you particularly particularly want. But I think it's easy to get stuck in the idea that somehow we treat ourselves with a pair of shoes. And that's the goal. And of course, it's not. Speaking of dreaming bigger, the president of Hearst Magazines is retiring at the end of the year and you're named as a top contender. Would you like that job? I'm really not a top contender for that job. And I have loved working alongside David. He's truly a brilliant sort of business mind. But we have completely different strengths. And my strengths would not be right for that job. You said women need to be realistic about motherhood and that the IVF industry is selling women a false dream. How so? Well, if you look at the actual statistics around fertility and IVF treatment, a lot of it doesn't work. And a lot of it doesn't work because, you know, you've already had problems. You go there, uh, you may be too old to realistically embark on endless cycles of IVF. And I think that we're in a moment where women are told to hold off having children either until they find Mr. Right or until they're financially in a position where they can completely lock down college tuition for their kids, which, uh, again, is is not something I would ever advise someone for. And so they get to a point in their lives where they are older than is necessarily ideal to have a child. It becomes incredibly complicated and IVF frequently doesn't work. And I worry that we've got an entire generation of women who've put off having children under the impression that if they can't get pregnant, tech will fix it. Well, actually, statistically, it won't. I just want people to know that. Sin and dating, it's too often the princess waiting for her prince but instead women need to get up on their own horse. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that you can't expect to find a prince who can do everything for you. And I think we still live in this slightly Cinderella-y kind of world where women secretly hope that they will meet a white knight on a charger who will come along and rescue them. And actually, it's exhausting waiting for that person. And that's a huge amount of pressure on the other person. And there's absolutely no reason why you can't harness your own horse and and gallop across the field as fast as you as you would like to. It doesn't mean you can't have someone galloping next to you, but I, uh, I think it's okay to have your own charger. You're on the board of SNAP. How do we get more women on corporate boards? 
Well, that's a great question. I think that boards are much more conscious of it now. If you look at the statistics over the last three to four years, there have been way more women and diverse candidates appearing on board, either shortlists or actually being selected. It's partly about if you're a customer of a company and you know they don't have a diverse board, making it clear. It's partly uh, educating boards that actually having senior management that reflects your customer base is actually good for the bottom line. And I think women have to put themselves up there and say they would like to do this. Sometimes they feel reluctant because they don't feel that they've got the training for it. There are all sorts of programs. You can go on at Harvard Business School or Columbia or Wharton, week-long programs. Um, And then I think the best way of doing it is find other women who are on boards and talk to them about it and ask them about it and let people know that you're available and ask for it, which women find really difficult to do. Men find it much easier to ask for things and don't mind being rejected. Don't take it as personally uh, as women do. And I think women have to become better at, at asking for things, but also we have to educate boards and companies that it helps the bottom line. There was some reporting that said you weren't getting paid as much as your male SNAP board counterparts. That reporting was later found to be inaccurate. What did you think of that experience of being held up as a woman who allegedly didn't fight for equal pay? Well, it was mildly irritating, I mean, in the scheme of things. Um, But it was funny because my friends uh, and some of the people I've worked with, uh, all of whom have found me to be an annoying negotiator, were all ringing up. Uh, laughing, frankly, at it. It was just one of those bad pieces of reporting, unfortunately. But, um, you know, it it got corrected. Cara Swisher wrote a very nice piece about it in in Rico, in which she said, if you've ever tried to negotiate with Joanna Coles, you'll know this seems unlikely. What would you say to people who say, why would a young woman subscribe to Cosmo magazine if she can get some of the content for free on Snapchat? Well, I think it's nice to have lots of content for free online. I love the version of Cosmo that we do on Snap, but I also think it's nice to unplug. And I think we're learning now that the more time you spend on digital, it doesn't always end up with you feeling better educated at the end of it. Um, And it becomes a sort of habit. And if you can occasionally break the habit and take half an hour a day when you feel uh, you can ride through the panic of being unconnected or disconnected from the world, you can find print. So reading a magazine, reading a book, extremely restorative. There's a lot of power in print. Just the fact that you can sort of relax with it in a different way. It's not going to keep beeping or notifying you with, with things that you're not actually interested in, but you feel you should be interested in. There's something incredibly relaxing and exciting about reading a book or reading a magazine and just switching the background noise of the world off. And I think we're seeing an appreciation of that as we begin to analyze our over-reliance on our smartphones. You said women need to know it's fun and easier to be in charge. How so? When we talk about women's careers at large, for the most part, we talk about them in terms of balance. We never tell women that it's much more fun to be in charge, you get much more money, and you get much more support. And that's a message that women should have, and they don't. The message they get is you're not going to be able to do it. You certainly aren't going to be able to to do a big job and have children at the same time. And despite the fact that one in five women no longer have children, actually four in five do, and most women, I think, probably do want families, no judgment on the people that don't. 
But the message that gets out at large to women is you are not going to be able to do this. And if you are able to do it, it's because you're a bitch and you've pushed everybody else aside. And in fact, it's not true. And the secret you discover, the higher up the corporate ladder you go, is the better you're supported, the more money you earn, and that makes everything easier. And you get control of your own schedule. And I remember Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, the uh, senator from New York, said that people will talk to her all the time and say, I don't understand how you manage to be a senator and have two children. And she says, it's because I control my schedule. I can pick them up from school at four o'clock. I can go back to work at nine o'clock at night if I want to. I'm the one in charge. That's what you're aiming for, the ability to control your schedule and get as much support as you can. How do you survive all those years in middle management potentially, though, before you get to that top level? Well, I think those are the hardest years when you're pressurized from below and pressurized from above and you have young children and then you just have to hold on tight. But you also have to build communities. I mean, when I look at how I got through those years, I had a very supportive husband and we were passing the baton back and forth. But I also had a fantastic group of working women who had my back, I had their back. If someone's kid was ill and someone had an important meeting, there would be the sharing of, you know, resources to help. And, you know, kids go to school at some point. That really helps too. And you build a network around the school. Lots of people are lucky enough to have family. If you have grandparents, they step into uh, the the role. Um, I was not lucky enough to have my uh, parents living in New York. I would love to have had that, n- nor my parents, nor my husband's parents. But, you know, it's one day at a time. And also you embrace the chaos. I mean, no one says that life has to be this smooth um, uninterrupted line of joy. It's it's chaos. It's up and down. It's, you know, it's not black and white. Everything is gray. And then sometimes it's bright yellow. And then sometimes it's orange. And then sometimes it appears to be gray again. So you have to just navigate as best you can. You've talked about having bag lady fears. Do you still have them? Of course I have bag lady fears. I think everybody has bag lady fears. Or I think a lot of women I know have bag lady fears. How come? You know, you have a, it's not, one wants to be realistic. Listen, when you live on the streets of New York, you see great ups and you see great downs. And I never pass a homeless person without thinking, how on earth did they get there? What happened to them that they would end up without a home, living on a grating on the Upper West Side? So I think it's a way of staying in touch and staying grounded and staying um, humble. What's the best personal finance advice you ever heard? I think that 50% of what you earn goes to the tax man. Never forget it. So when you're doing freelance work, when you're doing a book, when you're doing anything that's not being taxed through... Uh, you, you know, through your main job in my situation, just remember that 50% of it goes to the tax man. How has having money helped you achieve your goals? Well, I think the point of having money is to give you a little bit of freedom and a little bit of a break from the worry. I was never interested in money. Money's never actually been a motivator for me. I've always been interested in having interesting work. I loved being a journalist. I've loved being an editor. I love actually getting up in the morning and doing the work. That's the thing that's been motivating for me. The fact that you earn more as you get older has been very nice and you earn more as you get more senior roles. But I'm not, you know, I'm not rushing out and spending it all on on certain things. You're sort of... You know, I I want to squirrel away a little bit for a rainy day. What's your advice for women who want to bring build their personal brand? 
Well, I think it's easy now to build a personal brand because you have social media. So there are many ways to express yourself. I would just advise people to think about the long term in terms of, you know, is this something it's a bit like having a tattoo? You know, once it's out there, it's out there. It's very hard to remove and just be, you know, be true to, to who you are. Don't try and follow what works for someone else. Do what works for you. Who do you think we should have on our podcast? Well, there are so many women you should have on your podcast. I would love to hear from more scientists. I'd love to hear from doctors. I'd love to hear from people working on the frontier of biotech. I think there are so many exciting things happening out there. And I love hearing from women who we don't hear from traditionally. Time now for your secrets. I'm Joanna Coles, and my money secret is don't spend it all at once. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos with special help from J.R. Whalen. John Wardock is the executive producer. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com. Or on Twitter, use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.